morning, everyone. <clears throat> Tell this morning's sermon is, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and the revelation it gives us of yourself and the wonderful instruction it gives us for life on the side of heaven. This morning we'll be tackling a topic that doesn't um, deal so much with theology or, or so much with your character as it, as it does with application for our lives and our relationship to money. We'll see what Jesus said to the religious leaders. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to overlook it without um, digging into the text and, and why this criticism was levied against them and what we would, why we should be on guard against having that same criticism levied against us if you were to speak to us, Lord. And so I think this is a sermon that applies to all of us as we all deal with money and we could all have an unhealthy appetite for it. I pray, Lord, that you just use me as your vessel this morning to challenge all of us from your word. Uh, if there's areas in which we are um, unhealthy in our relationship to money, Lord, help us to see that, convict us, and we pray by your grace for the power of the gospel to help us repent as well, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 16, 14, and 15. We started these verses last week, but I told you I had to split the sermon into two because the sermon got too long and they introduced two unrelated but both important topics, and I wanted to commit an amount of time to each of them. And so last week, <laughs> we discussed the Pharisees justifying themselves, which that was a very important topic. And this morning, we're going to discuss the Pharisees being lovers of money. One other reason I want to talk about this is because money is definitely one of the themes of this chapter. We could go back a couple other chapters and all of, uh, you know, Luke and find other chapters that don't make mention of money at all. But here we see it repeated in verse 11. Jesus says, if you haven't been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you remember when we looked at this verse, I told you that unrighteous wealth is just referring to earthly wealth. It's not um, immoral or sinful, but it's called unrighteous because it belongs to this side of heaven. Verse 13, Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, so hate one, love the other, be devoted to one, despise the other. We can't serve God and money. Verse 14, Jesus calls the Pharisees lovers of money, and then soon we're going to look at the verses 19 through 21, which contain the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And so you can see how money is definitely one of the themes in this chapter. With that in mind, let's read verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus had taught in the previous parable about the unjust steward, and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And then notice this, For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And we'll deal with the end of verse 15 first. In particular, those words, what's exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And this brings us to lesson one. God sees things differently than man. <coughs> God sees things differently than man. Remember that famous account in the Old Testament? You don't have to turn there, but Samuel is being, the great prophet Samuel is being sent to anoint the next king of Israel after Saul um, has been recognized as a failure and needs to be removed, his house and his dynasty. New house, new dynasty is going to be established. And so Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse. And then he commits, at least it seems to me, probably the only blunder of his life, one that uh, any of us could easily commit as well, because the previous king Saul had been head and shoulders above uh, all other men, and so Samuel expects that the next king is also going to be this physically 
imposing individual. And so Samuel sees Jesse's first and oldest son, Eliab, standing before him. And then it says, 1 Samuel 16, 6, Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed is here. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or in the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance or on the external or physical, but the Lord looks on the heart or on the internal or the spiritual. And one of the other ways that God doesn't see as man sees or doesn't look at us the same or look at things the same way we look at things is contained in that phrase that we would exalt things and they would be an abomination to God. And that really, stru- that really stood out to me. I just want you to consider for a moment the incredible contrast created by that phrase. That is to say that there are things that we could esteem so highly we would exalt them or almost like there couldn't be, could not be better things to us than these things we esteem. And God could look at those same things and call them what? Okay, come on, guys, we just read it. Call them what? The things we would esteem. Abominations, it says. That is shocking to me. That some of the things we could think the highest of or most highly of, God could look at those same things and call them an abomination. What are some of the things that we could exalt? or highly esteemed that God could look at and then call in, and probably conversely this isn't necessarily the point of the verse but there could be other things that God would highly exalt and man would look at and lowly esteem I don't know if we'd consider them abominations but there could be things that God thinks is great whether service or humility that the world frowns on what are some of those things that we would exalt that God might consider to be an abomination well it could be fame we definitely exalt fame. We idolize it. Uh, we idolize famous people. We, we pursue fame. It becomes a god to us. It could be power. We idolize power. People uh, willing to go to incredible lengths to obtain power. And we exalt powerful people. We put them on pedestals and follow them, sometimes uh, being willing to die for them. It could be relationships. We idolize relationships. We'll do almost anything to have relationships with certain people. It could be talents or it could be skills they can become god's tests think of all that people might sacrifice to learn something that allows them to advance on this side of heaven and we also then promote people that have certain skills or talents one of the oddest to me and this isn't necessarily a a criticism of of athletes or actors i'm sure there probably are i know there are some godly athletes and probably some godly actors as well but these individuals have some skill or talent and we make them they're practically superheroes to us you know we we put them up on pedestals the the lengths people go just to catch a glimpse of their favorite favorite actor receive a signature um, from them and if those people do not serve the lord then god does not highly exalt them like we do could be knowledge and education that can become an idol for us think of all that people might sacrifice to obtain that next degree or to obtain uh, higher education and we'll idolize people or put them on pedestals when they have certain degrees uh, if they have some knowledge we'll even allow them to be authorities over god's word you know think of the number of people that will be listened to uh, even though they contradict scripture or even deny the teaching of scripture so lots of examples of this <clears throat> one thing i think we see exalted today that i don't think we have seen exalted in the past or at least not uh, to the level we do today at least definitely not in my childhood would be homosexuality or transgenderism a uh, few things seem to be as exalted among man today as homosexuality and transgenderism people come out 
or they declare that they're a man instead of a woman or a woman instead of a man or then uh, people begin declaring that they're neither man nor woman they're uh, they or they're them we're even ruining the english language they and them are plural words that cannot refer to one person but someone now can be a they or a them and here's the thing when these people come out or they uh, we exalt them we give them awards we say that they're courageous we put them on pedestals they become heroes for us and god would look at these things and call them abominations now there's probably some other examples we could consider as well but it's important to know for the context that none of these things are what christ has in view those are applications of the passage and i think that they're true but to deal specifically with what jesus was referring to when he said what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of god was the pharisees love of money that's the context and that's what he's talking about he is saying that they exalted money or wealth or riches to an extent that god thought was an abomination jesus condemned them and said it was an abomination in the sight of god because it was their idol they loved money more than they loved god they served money like jesus and this is why it flows well from the previous parable of the unjust steward where jesus just finished saying that you can't serve god and money because money is going to become a master or an idol and you can't have both and so they were serving money instead of serving god in verses 14 and 15 they can look unrelated to us and this is this is one of the beauties of having the time that i do to commit to studying because you encounter verses you kind of wonder what the flow is or why this would follow this and then you begin studying and you say oh that makes perfect sense now i can see why jesus said this or that you know connects the dots very well so when jesus said these two things he condemns the pharisee for loving money and condemns them for justifying themselves in verses 14 and 15 those look unrelated justify means declare righteous we've talked about that many times so what does the pharisees being lovers of money in verse 14 have to do with them justifying themselves or declaring their righteousness in verse 15 it looks unrelated but it's actually perfectly related because the pharisees used money to justify themselves or the pharisees used their wealth to declare their righteousness these criticisms are related because the pharisees taught that money was a gift from god for what or obedience or being righteous so the wealthier that they looked then the better they looked and this caused them to flaunt their money and to act extravagantly and so they would say they would justify themselves or declare their righteousness using money by saying things like we have so much money because we have been so good that god has rewarded us for our obedience and our righteousness why would god give us so much money except that he's pleased with us kind of the opposite argument of job's friends why would you suffer so much unless god was displeased with you so if you understand that's the religious leaders teaching of the day and then jesus comes on the scene and preaches the parable of the unjust steward and then talks about serving god or serving money you can see why the religious leaders despised so much what jesus was saying <coughs> the second thing that the religious leaders teaching on money did which they loved was it allowed them to criticize jesus do you see how it would allow that 
How did Jesus look? Did he look wealthy? No, here you've got this itinerant preacher who's walking around living this very modest and humble life. He's followed by who? Not kings and queens, not rich people, but sinners, uh, uh, beggars, uh, poor people, modest, humble people. So God must not be pleased with Jesus. And God must not be pleased with most of Jesus' followers or else they would be wealthier. And so the religious leaders loved this teaching that they had because it exalted them and it allowed them to criticize Christ. And it was even furthered by the belief that the Messiah would come and be rich and surrounded by rich people, not modest and surrounded by poor and modest people. Now here's the question that we're going to focus on for most of the rest of the sermon. What was the real problem for the religious leaders? Was it money itself or was it their love of money? The problem was their love of money. That's right. And this brings us to lesson, which is what Jesus condemned. I mean, that's not my opinion. You can look in verse 14, and he doesn't condemn them for being rich or having money. He condemns them for being lovers of money. And this brings us to lesson two. The love of money, part one, versus money is the problem. The love of money versus money is the problem. And go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 6. These are the premier verses about loving money. And this is why I couldn't fit this into last Sunday's sermon. I didn't think I could do justice to a discussion of loving money and justifying ourselves. We won't turn back to Luke. So take a look with me in 1 Timothy 6 so we can avoid making the same mistake as the Pharisees. Verse 9. Still hear pages turning. Verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We've probably all heard money is the root of all evil. More than likely, this statement is rooted in the King James translation of 1 Timothy 6.10, which says the love of money is the root of all evil. And and I would say it's not the best translation. There's a a couple uh, problems with it. In particular, it changes a root of all kinds of evils to root of all evil. And to say that money is the root of all evil is simply not correct because there is plenty of evil that is unrelated to money. The problem with thinking that money is responsible for all evil is that it's putting the blame in the wrong place. Where, where does sin come from or where is it produced from? Think about Jesus' words. What did Jesus blame? He said our hearts, Matthew five nineteen, out of the heart. Proceed evil thoughts, murder, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. James, he blamed our flesh. James 1.14, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. And so it wouldn't be accurate to say that evil is birthed from money, but it is birthed from us giving into temptation. Money itself is it moral, immoral, or amoral? Is money moral, immoral, or amoral? 
Yeah, money is amoral. It's a tool, it's a resource that can be used righteously or unrighteously. The problem is the love of money, and that's what gets us into trouble. And let me get you to notice that there are two groups in this chapter, interestingly. One of the groups is in verse 17. Just briefly look there. One group is in verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich, so that's one group, the rich, in this present age. And then notice this, Paul doesn't condemn them. He says, charge them or warn them not to be haughty or proud, not to set their hopes or to trust in riches or the uncertain, on the uncertainty of riches, but trust in, but on God, so trust God instead, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It makes sense that if you're very wealthy, it would be very easy to trust your wealth instead of trusting God or to become proud or haughty as a result. But there's no condemnation here for rich people. So that's one group. Now look in verse 9 for the other group. The other group is those who desire to be rich. So he's got those who are rich in verse 17, and then in verse 9, those who desire to be rich. And he does condemn those who desire to be rich. He says they fall into temptation, a snare, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So it almost seems backward, or backward from the way the world would probably describe rich and poor people, or rich people and people who desire to be rich. Interestingly, we would almost expect at least in the world, to condemn people who are rich. I shared before that the, the world, uh, especially in socialistic circles, acts like wealth is this limited resource. So if one person has more, they must have gotten it from someone who has less. But you notice here there's no condemnation for the rich person. And in the world, you'd almost expect Paul to rebuke them. Instead, the rebuke is for those people who desire to be rich, which in the world would almost be those that we would expect to um, be pitied because they're not rich. And so there's a sense in which it's almost the opposite of what the world would cause us to believe. So we're going to focus on those who desire to be rich or those who have a love of money. And it's this way because being rich isn't the problem. The problem is a strong desire to be rich or that desire or the love of money. And so as we begin, we want to ask ourselves, this flows from Luke 16 and Jesus's condemnation of the Pharisees. So are we like the Pharisees? Do we love money? Do we crave it? Do we covet it? Do we dream about it? Do we obsess over it? And these are important questions to ask because look what Paul says in verse 9 about those who love money or about those who desire to be rich. He says they fall into temptation, they fall into a snare, they fall into many senseless and harmful desires, which brings us to the next part of lesson two. The love of money, part two, leads to sin. The love of money, part two, leads to sin. So I'll be the first to admit that pastors are notorious for using illustrations that simply are not true. And I'll be one of the first ones, uh, not just to admit that, but to express frustration with it because I'll generally try to listen to sermons on the passages that I'm teaching, and I might hear a great illustration, and then I'll go and look it up and find that it's just not true, right? So you can hopefully be confident that if I ever use an illustration in a sermon that I've done my best to make sure that it's true before I share it with you. Now, this next illustration is in fact true. I was even able to watch a video of it on, on YouTube. I know I shared this before, but I guess because it's so hard to find true illustrations, sometimes I have to start repeating them, okay? 
Um, so there's this man that wants to trap this monkey. And so he hollows out this space in the side of a mound, and he puts food through that space in this, in this little um, crevice that he created in this mound. And the opening was not large enough for the monkey to put his hand in to get the food, hold on to the food, and then pull his hand back out. The opening was only large enough for him to put his hand in. So the monkey puts his hand in, and he grabs this food, and then this man is waiting some distance away, hiding behind this tree. And then as the monkey tries to pull out the food, he will not let go of it, and so he ends up being trapped there, and then the man moves from behind this tree and runs up and then seizes the monkey. The reason I mention this is the Greek word that's translated snare, it's the word pagis, and it specifically refers to a trap in which an animal would be entangled and then caught unexpectedly, like this monkey. And so there's the sense in which Paul is saying that the way that animals can be caught by a trap, people can be caught by a love of money. Or a love of money can catch us unexpectedly, or we can get entangled just like this monkey. And so it's kind of easy when you watch this video to think about the foolishness of this monkey and being able to be trapped or then caught like this. But the point is the same thing, that, the same thing can happen to us when we love money. And notice this, we would expect Paul to say, desiring to be rich is the temptation. No, look at the verse. We would expect Paul to say, desiring to be rich is the temptation. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, if we desire to be rich, we fall into temptation or it causes us to be tempted. So a love of money is going to cause us or plunge us into temptation repeatedly. And let me explain why this is the case. The Greek desire for the Greek word for desire, it's bulamai, and it means to will deliberately. So when he talks about people who desire to be rich, he's not talking about people that might just consider or daydream about being rich and say, oh, you know, being rich, that'd be kind of interesting, or I wish I was rich. And I, I don't know many people who've never wondered that at least some number of times in their lives. Those people are not in view in this verse. That word desire, or to will deliberately, is people who have decided they will be rich, and they will not let anything stop them from reaching that goal. These are people who are so absolutely consumed and obsessed with being rich that there's nothing that they will not do to get the riches that they want. And can you see all of the temptation that that would introduce into a person's life when they're willing to do just about anything to become rich? Consider the way the Amplified translates parts of these verses. It says, those who crave to get rich with a compulsive, greedy, longing for wealth, for the love of money, that is the greedy desire for it, and the willingness to gain it unethically. And that's not my commentary. That's what the Amplified adds, that people are willing to gain it unethically or sinfully. So there are people who are so fixated on being rich that it controls their lives. This is what Jesus condemned with the Pharisees. And that's really one of the reasons. I'm, obviously, we know that the religious leaders were envious of Jesus. And we're told that in the gospel accounts that Pilate himself knew that when they were calling for Christ's crucifixion that it was because they were envious. But that's not the only reason that the, the religious leaders despised Jesus, he was also a threat to their wealth or to their riches. And so talk about the lengths that they were willing to go to 
to maintain their wealth. They're willing to call out for the Son of God's crucifixion. So the desire to be rich can be so strong that it leads to temptation, and people are willing to do anything to become rich, including sin. They will not let anything stand between them and the money that they're committed to obtaining. And so the idea is once the love of money has taken root in people's hearts, there's almost no sin that they are not willing to commit to obtain the wealth that they're craving. And if you think of many crimes, which is probably why the King James words it this way, but even outside of the King James it says the love of money is the root or cause of all kinds of evils, well, just think about why many crimes are committed. Greed, jealousy, covetousness, people will lie, they will cheat, they will steal, they will even murder to become rich. Just think of the examples we have in Scripture, people who loved money so much that they were willing to sin to get it. We've got Achan. They destroy Jericho, and Achan is caught by these gold bars, or whatever, whatever wealth it was that he saw in Jericho, that he took some, he hid it in his tent, even though all of it was supposed to be destroyed. Balaam told not to go with Balak, but he wanted the uh, money that Balak was offering so badly that he went against the expressed will of God. God specifically told him, no, do not go with Balak, and he went anyway. Gehazi, <clears throat> Naaman, is miraculously healed by the prophet Elijah, and Naaman, he wants, or uh, Gehazi, Elijah's servant, well, let me back up. After the prophet Elijah tells Naaman how to be healed of his leprosy, Naaman came with his huge entourage and all this wealth, and he offered it to the prophet. And the prophet said, no, I'm not going to take that, because he didn't want to ruin this picture of the gospel that we would be saved or cleansed of sin by uh, some amount of money. But Gehazi wants that money, so he chases down Naaman to get it from him. And then he comes back, and Elijah, basically Elijah says, I'm a prophet. Did you really think that I wouldn't see what you just did? And so now you get what Naaman lost. You get his wealth, but you also get his leprosy. Judas, probably the most famous example, willing to betray the Lord himself for 30 pieces of silver. So people who love money, they've broken the first of the Ten Commandments because they made money their God. Then they break the second commandment because they make money an idol. And then it's only slightly more compromising to break the other commandments that forbid lying, stealing, adultery, taking God's name in vain, coveting, even murder. So in other words, loving money leads to plenty of other sins. Hence verse 9 saying, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. J.C. Ryle said, Let us all be on our guard against the love of money. The world is full of it in in our days. It's surprising. I wonder what he would say about our day. He said this in his day. But he said, The world is full of the love of money in our day. The plague is abroad. Thousands who would hate the idea of worshiping an idol are not ashamed to make an idol of gold. We are all liable to the infection, from the least to the greatest. We may love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. It is an evil that works very deceitfully. It carries us captives before we are aware of our chains. Once it becomes master, it will harden, paralyze, scorch, freeze, blight, and wither our souls. It overthrew an apostle of Christ, Judas. Let us take heed that it does not overthrow us. 
Now, because the love of money causes so much sin, it's an impossibility that the love of money would affect only the sinner because sin always has far-reaching consequences, as is the case with all sin. And so when verse 9 says it plunges people into ruin and destruction, it's talking about the way that sin would affect others. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two, the love of money, part three, ruins and destroys. Part three, the love of money ruins and destroys. Verse nine says it plunges people into ruin and destruction. So you kind of look at that and you say, is that different? Is ruin different than destroys? What, what does it mean to ruin? What does it mean to destroy? You don't even have to wonder that. They're just, they're synonyms. God is repeating himself to drive home this point, to make it abundantly clear to us just how devastating the consequences of loving money can be, including to the people around the sinner himself or around the person who loves money, family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, these people are going to suffer because of that person's love of money. They're going to experience that person's obsession and discontentment. They're going to suffer through the compromise or deceit that that person goes through or commits to uh, obtain money. They're going to end up shouldering the financial and the legal problems that are caused. And Achan is a perfect example. Who suffered the most even more than the nation of Israel. There were definitely far-reaching consequences to Achan's sin, right? Because after Israel has that victory over Jericho, they went out and they lost where? Against Ai, this little settlement. And so they conquer what's viewed as almost this impregnable fortress, Jericho, because of the walls, and then they go out and they lose against Ai. Joshua's confused, and God says there's sin in the camp. So the nation of Israel suffered because of Achan's sin, but who suffered even more because of Achan's sin? His family did. They ended up being executed with him, it seems. It's almost troubling. You, could, you, you want to just believe, well, they must have been part of it. I don't know whether they were part of it or not, but I do know that if they weren't part of it, it's just one of the best examples in all of Scripture of the far-reaching effects of sin. And when there's a head of a household who sins, who suffers the most? The household does. And so it's an incredible lesson for us. Proverbs 15, 27, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. And I don't think there could be a better example than Achan. How does the greedy for unjust gain trouble their household? We just think about men, for example. If they're obsessed with wealth, they're going to neglect their families. How many people have sacrificed marriages for jobs or they put that next promotion ahead of their children? They're going to fight over money. How many families have come apart? Is there anything that has divided families more than money? Someone dies, multiple people in the family want what that person had, and they begin to fight over it, fight over that inheritance. People will love money more than their own family members. A lawyer will tell you where there's a will, there's what? Where there's a will, there's what? Relatives, right? (laughs) There's one more place in Scripture that talks clearly about the dangers of loving money, and I want to look at that too. That's Ecclesiastes 5. So go ahead and turn there. We won't turn back to Timothy. So Ecclesiastes 5, so turn toward the poetical books, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. So look for Psalms, and then after that are Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And while you turn there, just let this kind of wash over you. The theme of Ecclesiastes, and I believe if you understand 
that this is the theme, the book will take on a beauty that you won't find otherwise. I've, I've listened to some people talk about Ecclesiastes as the most depressing book in all of Scripture, like on par with Job. <clears throat> I don't think that. I think it's actually a very encouraging book. But the reason is that I understand Ecclesiastes is about the futility or vanity of this life when it is experienced apart from God. So if you look at Ecclesiastes and understand this is the record of a man who tried to enjoy all that this life offers without God, and this is why he felt, then you can be very encouraged when you experience this life with God. You won't find that futility or vanity that Solomon experienced. So look in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. So you see the relationship to 1 Timothy 6.10, nor he who loves wealth with his income, and then this also is vanity. And so this verse is making the point that money doesn't satisfy. It doesn't matter how much you have. It's never going to be enough, which is why it's vanity. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. The love of money, part four, is vain. (coughs) The love of money, part four, is vain. If anyone's going to talk to us about the vanity of wealth, it's going to be Solomon. He, had, he makes you know, Bill Gates or, or Elon Musk look poor. Silver is worthless in his kingdom. That's how much gold he had, more, more wealth than any of us could ever imagine. <clears throat> and look in verse 11. He said, this is why wealth is vain. He says, when goods increase or riches increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So he tells us two reasons in this verse why wealth is vain. And so first he says, as wealth increases, what else increases? The number of people that want your wealth. The number of people that want your presence. Lots of people start showing up when you're a rich person. Some of them are friends. Some of them are relatives. But they're not showing up because they love you or care about you or are interested in you and want to spend time with you. They're showing up because they love your money. They want some of it. They want to, as the verse says, eat it. They're eating your food. They're enjoying your stuff. They're taking advantage of you. Proverbs 19.6 says, Many entreat the favor of the nobility, and every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. Many entreat the favor of the nobility or the rich or powerful or famous, Every man is a friend to one who gives good gifts. And what's this saying? People are going to love you, love, I'm using the word loosely, if you're rich. Solomon also makes the point that loving money is vain because money lets you buy stuff, but what can you do with it? I mean, if you think about it, what can we do with a lot of the stuff we buy? Just look at it. I mean, that's what he says here. He says, what advantage does the owner have but to see it with his eyes. So you, you get your friends together and you say, hey, look at my new car, you know, look, look at my new house, uh, look, look at my new golf clubs, or look at my new clothes, or look at my new fill-in-the-blank. It's all just stuff to look at. The greatest joy or peace in this life, it's not afforded by anything that we're going to buy and look at. And that's one of the other points in the book of Ecclesiastes, that really the greatest joy or peace in this life comes from what we're going to do after service today. We're going to go eat and fellowship together. And so that's what Solomon does. Solomon, who had all these experiences, 
He just boils it all down to say, I would give up all of this stuff. There's nothing better in life than being able to eat and drink and enjoy your work. So honestly, if you can say, I can eat, I can drink, and I can enjoy my work, you're really one of the richest people in history. So Henry Ford said, you can only wear one pair of pants at a time and look at the rest. (laughs) So Henry Ford, another rich person, understood the same thing. And I'm sure with all of his cars, you get a bunch of cars, you can only drive one of them at a time. This this gentleman, the other uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe some of you saw it, I took a, a picture of it. We had developed a relationship with a gentleman, and we uh, spent a little time with him, and he wanted to, wanted, uh, to give us a tr- uh, trip in his, I think it was a Corvette. See, that's how much of a non-car person I am. I don't even remember. I'm not sure. Was it a Corvette? Is that what it was? Was it a Corvette? Stingray. A Stingray? Is that a Corvette? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, so a Stingray. So I, I thought it was a car, and it's actually a fish. So anyway, um, so we're, he lets us drive this around, and I honestly, I spent most of the time driving in fear. That's how I felt. And I couldn't really, you know, go very fast to any place. I kind of wish there had been some place that was open where I could really kind of go. Took Ricky on a drive, took Ray on a drive. But to me, it was just, I was kind of glad to get it back and give it to him and, and then just get in my nice, safe Buick LeSabre. You know, uh, Ray's like, Dad, Ray goes, Dad, I don't know if this is fine for me to say. Is it fine? Oh, I'll probably say it anyway. Okay. Okay. So Ray looks at me and she goes, Dad, this car just does not fit you. This does not fit you. So I don't know what car fits me, but I know it's not a, a, a car named after a fish. So maybe my Buick LeSabre fits me. I'm, I'm fine with it. Okay, it gets worse here. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. One more time. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So who sleeps well based on this verse? Hard workers. <laughs> That's a nice thought that you work, have you, you work hard and what happens? You lay down at night and you fall right asleep, but it's a wonderful thing to work hard. And I mean, you know, you, some of us uh, fall asleep easier than others. And if you work hard, it allows you to fall asleep even easier. Uh, but rich people, they don't sleep very well. It says right here, the rich man whose stomach is full, that doesn't mean he eats a lot. Stomach is full is a metaphor for being rich. And it says he's filled with anxiety that keeps him awake. And why is that? Because rich people worry. Do I have enough money? I'm upside down in this big expensive house that I can't afford. I can't afford my mortgage, my car payments. Why did I buy that extra car? Why did I buy that big flat screen television, that payment plan? It sounded so good at the time. Now it's giving me nightmares. You know, did I really need that extra set of and then just fill in the blank there? Look at verse 13. Solomon says, there's a grievous, oh, when we lit, we had, and I'll share this because we, it's not, not anywhere around here, but we had lived, when we were in California, we lived in this cul-de-sac, and there was a, a pretty wealthy couple, I don't even know if we ever spoke to them, that lived kind of close to us, and, you know, I'd kind of pull out and look at their house and admire it, and think, man, that's a beautiful house, and they'd regularly kind of drive these, these uh, fancy vehicles, and so one time one of our neighbors who seem to pretty much, have you ever, do you know how there's some neighbors and they just know everything about everyone? You know, this is one of those neighbors that just knew everything about everyone. And so one day this neighbor starts talking to me about these rich people and they said that their lives were just miserable because they couldn't afford their house and all the anxiety and all the stuff that they had bought. And so there was this kind of this picture 
of security, but it was actually all insecurity. You know, they, they were in a lot of debt and they were going to foreclose. And so it was just shocking because I'd lived near them for years and just assumed that probably they were pretty wealthy people. But the point is they had a lot of anxiety and they were not sleeping well at night was what my neighbor was saying that they were really, really stressed out people and wondering how they were going to... It's one of those situations where they don't even want to go to the mailbox because there's going to be one more bill for them to pick up that they can't pay, even though they're living in this extravagant house and they have these extravagant vehicles. So verse 13, Solomon says, There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Riches were kept by the owner to his own hurt. And some translations probably tell you this has hoarding in view here. I don't have time to, to talk about it at length, but it's probably talking about hoarding. Uh, and the, and pe- there's actually a show called Hoarders that shows the misery people are experiencing as they're ruining their lives because they're hoarding so much stuff that they walk down these little aisles and it looks like all their stuff's about to collapse on them and bury them and probably kill them. And so they're keeping their stuff to their own hurt. But what's the other reason that Solomon is saying this? He's saying that people keep wealth or possessions to their own hurt or detriment because they're keeping track of it, they're managing it, it's taking time and effort. And when I renewed my tabs for my vehicle you know, this past week, and then you, you start getting lots of vehicles or lots of boats, and it's not a commentary on boats or vehicles. In fact, my thought is that most of the people in our church who have boats or vehicles tend to be super gracious with them. If you go to camp, they're driving people around and spending the whole day using these, these vehicles or boats to, to bless others. But the point is, these things take time to, to do the maintenance on them and to keep up with them. And then you feel like you're buying these things and you have to use them because you don't want to feel like you bought it for no reason. But the other reason it's vanity is you're going through all of that effort. And then what happens with all of these things when you die? They don't go anywhere. <laughs> you don't bring them with you. The only wealth we bring with us into the next life is the wealth that we've used for God's glory, right? The only wealth that accompanies us or that is stored up in, tre- in heaven for us where moth and rust do not destroy is the wealth that we've used for God's kingdom. So look at Solomon talk about that. He talks about wealth disappearing. He says riches that were, lo- in verse 14, riches that are lost in a bad venture, He's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And so rich people can lose riches through a bad, bad venture, bad business decision, or some other misfortune. Could be an accident, could be a fire, could be medical bills. And then they're right back where they were before with nothing in their hand. It means nothing in their hand to then pass on to their children. And then the last two verses showing why loving money is vain. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And so what's the main point that Solomon is making here in verses 15 and 16? None of it's going with us. There's no boats, homes, cars, bank accounts, IRAs that are going with us. We lose all of it when we die. And that's why he says there's no gain. This is why it's toiling or grasping for the wind, or this is why it is vanity. Now, one of the things I want to ask you is, so we're talking about the negative consequences for this life associated with loving money, 
but are there consequences for the next life associated with loving money in other words we're talking about temporary ruin and destruction if you don't you don't have to turn that but if you take your minds back to first timothy 6 the ruin and destruction is that only temporary and earthly or is it also eternal it is also eternal listen to this first timothy 6 10 it is through this craving referring to the love of money that some have listen to this wandered away from the faith so paul says people's love of money is enough to cause them to wander away from the faith where they're pierced have pierced themselves with many pangs well we're saved by faith so if you wander away from the faith you've wandered away from salvation now this is not to say that people can lose their salvation but it is to say that they have abandoned the way to be saved because they have chosen between God and money and they because we can't serve both as Christ said and they chose money the imagery is of people straying off a path and finding themselves in thorn bushes which is why it's followed up by saying they pierce themselves with many pangs you wander off the path and then thorn bushes pierce you other verses also communicate the eternal consequences of loving money first Tim, first corinthians 6 10 the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of god one of the best examples actually and we reach it in a few verses of someone who loved money going to hell is the story i don't think it's a parable i think it's an actual account of two people the rich man and lazarus and you can see that that rich man who loved money ended up going to hell he'd wandered away from the faith he embraced he embraced his wealth over christ and this brings us to our last lesson that hopefully ties together this sermon and the end of the parable of the unjust steward the love of money part five chokes christ out of our lives the love of money part five chokes christ out of our lives in the parable of the sower jesus said he matthew 13 22 he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful so there's interestingly there's seed or the gospel or the word of god that lands on some people's hearts and the devil doesn't have to come snatch it away as with one of the other soils instead it's the deceitfulness of riches that choke the word out of their heart and do you remember the, the story of the of the rich young ruler that jesus spoke to and jesus he wants to inherit the kingdom of god he's sincere but he comes to jesus and jesus tells him to part with his wealth and he can't do it so he's he's the rich young ruler says oh man i got to choose between christ and my wealth i take my wealth that was a choice he made deceitfulness of riches choke the word out of his heart and so the love of money chokes the spiritual out of our lives in response after the rich young ruler mark 10 23 so after the rich young ruler makes his choice listen to what jesus says mark 10 23 jesus looked around he said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of god and the disciples were astonished at his words but jesus answered again and said to them children how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of god it is easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably heard lots of different opinions about what the camel going through the eye of the needle means. And I confess, I don't know. I've heard good arguments for different interpretations, but the truth is you don't need to know exactly what this is saying because the main point is obvious. It is hard for rich people to get into heaven. Whether you know what the eye of the needle is or isn't, you cannot miss the main point. Jesus is making that it is harder for rich people to enter heaven. And why is that? People who love money can't fit into the kingdom of God. Their wealth is not going to leave room for Christ. And that issue is competition. We only have so much room in our hearts. We can have only have so many things that occupy space. And to let one thing in is to push out something else. Or to let one thing in is to choose not to let in something else. Now, that's a great thing if what we let in is Christ. That's a wonderful thing if our hearts are filled with the gospel. But it's bad if we let in the love of money, which squeezes out or pushes out Christ. And this brings us back to the end of the sermon on the unjust steward. Luke 16, 13, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters. There's not room in our hearts for both. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So money can become an idol, and we don't have room for two gods in our hearts. We can have Christ, or we can have the love of money, but not both. So we just want to make sure that we choose wisely. I'll be up front after service. If you have any questions about anything I've shared, I consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you and pray with you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the sober warning about the love of money. Probably good for us to be uh, reminded of it uh, occasionally because money is such a frequent topic in scripture and we see that it can become a god and so i pray lord that we would uh, be receptive to what your word says and the love of money would be pushed out of our hearts by your son and that if we are lovers of money which i suspect is a, a temptation for all of us to an extent that we, we can push that out of our heart, <laughs> excuse me, resist that temptation and give our hearts over fully to loving Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.